more basic in terms of a question about life than to ask the question, what were we created for in the first place? Well, in a confession of faith, a series of statements about the basic beliefs that we have as Christians called the Westminster Catechism. I believe that question was beautifully answered. The Westminster Catechism states that the chief end of man is to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, that gets pretty simple, doesn't it? You and I were created not only to know God, not only to enter into a relationship with God, but to have a deep and abiding and ongoing appreciation for who He is. You know, Jesus Himself laid great stress on the place of worship in our lives, in God's purpose. In the book of John, chapter 4, and verse 23, Jesus said these words, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this passage tells us two very important things. First of all, worship is so important to God, He is actively seeking people to enter into this blessing. But this passage tells us something else. There's a right way and a wrong way to worship. God's right way is in spirit and in truth. The wrong ways are the often self-styled, perhaps sincere, but misdirected efforts of man to worship. Well, how can we make sure that we personally are on the right side of that equation? Not only discovering exactly what it is that God created us for in the first place, but on top of that, entering into the fullness of blessing entering into the abundance of life that comes when you and I learn what it means to really worship God. Well, tonight in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, pretty interesting passage defines some real lessons about worship. Because we could call this section of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 5, raided by a lost ark. We're going to see what happened to a group of individuals called the Philistines, who had absolutely no clue about what it meant to worship the true and living God. And as we watch their bad example as they came face to face with the presence of God, we will learn by extension what it means for people like you and I to truly enter in to the fullness of blessing that God intended us to have in worship. We're going to see three very important insights to the fine art of worshiping God in this passage tonight. First, we'll see the person of worship. Now, one of the most important questions you and I can ever ask on the subject of worship, quite simply, is this. Who are we worshiping? And believe me, the answer to that question isn't as simple as you might think. Secondly, we are going to see the power of worship. We're going to answer a second and equally important question. Why are we worshiping in the first place? What is it that we are expecting to get out of this process as we enter into worship? How do we know we've got the real thing? Well, we'll see in this passage some very important insights in that area. And finally, we're going to see the provision of worship. The change of life that God desires to work out in the hearts and minds of each and every person who draws near to Him in the often talked about, but quite frankly, poorly understood fine art 
of worshiping the Lord. Well, let's pray and ask that even this time in God's Word would be a time of worship for us, a time of close communion with our Father. And let's ask the Lord as well to take the rough edges off of our approach to worship and make us those worshipers who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your Word shows us the most important things of life. And really, we are focusing in not only on something that is an important thing in this life, but also in the afterlife. What it means to draw close to You. Father, I know You've got things to teach all of us. Lord, it just blows my mind even the things You were teaching me today on this subject. I pray, Father, that You would give us open and receptive hearts. And I pray, Father, that perhaps if we have not yet fully entered into the joy of daily having a worship experience with You, we will learn not to follow the example of the Philistines and worship in our own self-styled ways. But instead, following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would learn how to worship You beginning tonight in spirit and in truth. Oh Lord, may Your Spirit lead us into truth now. And may we leave this place with the tools necessary, Lord, to be able to more fully receive and more accurately relate to You in the fine art of worship. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our study of the book of 1 Samuel, you know we're getting into some pretty heavy territory. Because in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, we've seen a real contrast develop between the idea of self-styled worship and spirit-led worship. We've seen that sincerity really isn't all there is to having a great relationship with God. In fact, there are some people who will very sincerely choose to get involved with religion rather than a relationship with God. And last time we were together, we saw what a devastating thing that could be. The people of Israel had drifted to the place, even among the priesthood itself, where they had more confidence, they were more comfortable with the things that sort of surrounded the person of God than entering into a relationship with God Himself. And because of that, all of their confidence was in an object of worship, the Ark of the Covenant, and not in the Lord who made the Ark of the Covenant worth having. So confident were they that in spite of the fact that worship that surrounded the Ark of the Covenant had become a corrupt kind of joke, they thought that by bringing the Ark with them into battle, it would guarantee them victory. The Ark had really become nothing more to them than a gold-plated lucky rabbit's foot. And the Lord wasn't going to indulge that. They brought the ark into battle and lo and behold what happened. Their arch enemies, the Philistines, routed them in battle. The two corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed and the ark was captured. We discovered that the high priest, the one who should have been running the show, Eli, when he heard the word of the battle from a messenger who came with the news of the defeat of Israel, his heart broke not over the loss of his two sons, which is very revealing, but when he heard the ark was captured, Eli keeled over in his chair, fell backwards and broke his neck and died. We are told that even Phineas's wife, when she heard about the battle being lost and the ark departing, went into childbirth. And in childbirth, she began to die. But before she died, she gave birth to a son whom she named Ichabod, which literally means the, no glory. The glory has departed from Israel. Even this woman was more concerned about this religious relic, the ark, than she was her relationship 
with her own husband. And that's what happens when you get involved with religion. Religion is everything. But religion proved to be nothing when the chips were down. And so you see the disaster that happened. The very object, the centerpiece of Israeli worship, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God manifested His presence was now in heathen hands. Or perhaps as we are going to see, perhaps the heathen were really in the hands of the God who made the Ark holy because the tide is going to turn real quick. That's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1. There we read, Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Now, clearly you can see in these first three verses a very interesting insight into that first key question of worship. Who are we really worshiping? Well, the Philistines, as you can see, were kind of committed to an old age, new age mentality as far as worship went. They saw the Ark of the Covenant as really no different than their carved idol Dagon. In fact, they thought, well, if we got a little worship with Dagon, then a little bit more worship with this Ark of the Covenant would be a great thing. But some very interesting insights develop in this passage. Notice in verse 1, we're told that the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The name Ebenezer is very significant. It means literally, stone of remembrance. That place was called a stone of remembrance originally to commemorate great victories for Israel in good times. But from that point onward, Ebenezer became a byword for incredible spiritual and national defeat. You know, sometimes we have Ebenezer stones in our own lives. There are key moments, key landmarks in our lives where perhaps we have tasted spiritual defeat. Perhaps you can think about times where you uniquely and powerfully and even profoundly have done a spiritual face plan. Now, when we start to consider these things, the whole idea of times we were less than victorious in our walk with Christ, boy, there's a lot of us that just kind of want to sweep those under the rug. We want to pretend like those moments never happened. And there is a certain value to that. Understand, the Bible tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 says that God does not hold your past against you. And sometimes I've known people who use their past like a blunt instrument on themselves and they're continually beating themselves up over the mistakes of the past. But understand this. Although there is a real temptation to abuse the past, there is a genuine work of God that He desires to do so that we can use the past. So that we don't repeat the same mistakes that we made in the past. The Spanish philosopher Santa Ana put it this way. He who will not learn from history is condemned to repeat it. And that is very true spiritually. God wants you to move on after you've fallen, but God also wants to move in your heart as a result of those times when you've fallen. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see that this is a technique that God uses on a large level in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren... 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. How can you make the most of your past? Take a look at those times in the past where you've fallen. But when you look at those times you've fallen, never forget... God's faithfulness in picking you back up. Two-fold blessing from this, from having those Ebenezer stones in your life. Number one, you're going to remember the faithfulness of God, but secondly, you don't have to continually make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so, this great defeat at this stone of remembrance caused the ark of God to be brought from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was one of the capital cities of the Philistines. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, verse 2, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Well, once again, we see this idea of religious pluralism in its flaming glory. I mean, this kind of mentality would have worked really well in our public schools today. Hey, You know, you can have all the religion you want. Just don't say one religion is better than another. Well, the contrast here is a little bit striking. Here you've got the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of the creator of the universe, next to the lovely idol Dagon. Dagon, the exact nature of this idol is disputed by different archaeologists and scholars. But the consensus seems to be that Dagon was the head honcho god for the Philistines. Dagon was the god of good crops and fair weather. In some images, Dagon is portrayed as having the body of a man and the head of a fish. And so you have this grotesque-looking idol and the Ark of the Covenant. And according to the Philistines, according to their mentality, there should be no problem with the two coexisting. There should be no problem at all because after all, isn't one spiritual thing as good as the other. What do you suppose they came up with that idea? How do you suppose they thought about that? I mean, it seems so foreign to us. But you know, I'm sure the way the Philistines observed how the people of Israel used the Ark of the Covenant, like a good luck charm, they saw there was no distinction. There was no difference. You know, we really need to be careful ourselves in how we share our faith with people. Granted, it's wonderful to share the good things that God has done for you. 
It's wonderful to tell people that Jesus gives you peace. It's wonderful to tell people that you sense the love of God all around you or the times that God Himself has delivered you. And those are great things. But understand this. If our sharing of our faith never gets back to the ultimate issue of Christianity, the ultimate issue of the Gospel, that is that Jesus Christ walked this earth, that He was God in human flesh, that He suffered and died on a cruel Roman cross, and three days later, rose from the dead as an objective act of God in history. If you don't bring it back to that, you haven't shared the Gospel. You've just shared another religion. And if you come to people and say, well, put your trust in Jesus because He makes you feel good. What are you going to say when someone says, well, drugs do that for me. Why should I get into Jesus? I'm doing just fine. Hey, TM does that for me. Why should I look into Jesus? It all comes back to what's real and what's not. And if you don't bring it back to the history, if you don't bring it back to the reality of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, you've missed sharing the Gospel. You've preached about yourself a little bit, but you haven't really gotten down to the key issue. And in my experience, the wicked one is very content with you telling people all kinds of wonderful things about you, 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 as long as you never get around to him, him, him. And that's who we share. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what we need to emphasize. That's what Israel failed to emphasize. And no wonder the Philistines just put this thing up as another idol. Hey, it looks pretty good. It's made out of gold. looks really nice right there by Dagon. But God had some other plans. He had a different opinion about all of this. Verse 3 says, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Now, does something strike you as a little screwy about this? Here you've got this God that you have set up, a God with a little G, of course, and you say, this is the, this is the head honcho God. This is the God who gives us the crops. This is the God who blesses us with fertility. This is our fish God with the head of a fish and, you know, the, the body of a man. This is... The source of everything. And you come in and it's fallen flat on his face. So what do you do? You've got to prop it back up again. Well, let me tell you something. If you've got to prop your God back up again, you've got a lame little God working there, don't you? But that's what happens when we get involved with idolatry. In the book of Isaiah, a really fascinating piece of sarcasm in the Word of God. If you don't think the Bible has a sense of humor about some things, Turn with me to Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 14, Isaiah is talking about the whole idea of idolatry and what insanity it really was. Speaking of a person who was putting an idol together, Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 14, says, He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he shall take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it, and he makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it. Praise him and says, Deliver me, for you're my god. They do not know nor understand. 
for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've, I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You see, sometimes we look at the crazy things that people believe these days. And we think, well, you know, it's just a question of them not being educated enough. But you need to understand, there are those who will prefer to feed on ashes and to bow down before things which are not God to having a real relationship with God. Why? Because the one thing that you discover about a real relationship with God is the God of the Bible, the true and living God, is a God that's awfully hard to control. He's not just going to be satisfied with you attending little meetings. He's not going to be happy with a little corner of your life. He wants you. He wants all of you. No wonder people prefer idols. Well, I've, you know, I've made this little idol and now I can tell this little idol what the rules are. Then I can still feel religious while I'm doing it. It's crazy. But religion is crazy. I've run into some crazy things in talking with people who are committed to religion. I remember once I was walking across a parking lot of a grocery store. I was going to my car and two of those guys that you see, you know, on the bicycles, you know, wearing the white shirts, you know, came pedaling on by and they said, hey, would you like to talk about spiritual things? I said, well, sure, you know, let's talk. And, you know, they had their little tag saying elder so-and-so from this ward. And, and I said, well, I see you guys are Mormons. And they said, yes, yes, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I said, you know, I don't really think Jesus has a lot to do with your church. So naturally, they got a little defensive. And I said, you know, the big problem I have with you guys is that you claim that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God and he doesn't pass the test of being a prophet. Well, what do you mean he doesn't pass the test of being a prophet? I said, okay, you tell me. Has Joseph Smith ever made a prophecy that has come to pass? And so, oh yes, Joseph Smith made a very profound prophecy. In 1832, he prophesied the beginning of the Civil War. He even said that it would begin in South Carolina and lo and behold, it happened. I said, well, yeah, that is a very interesting prophecy. But do you know what the rest of it is? And I should preface this by saying that whenever the Mormons send out their missionaries, there's always a more experienced one and a less experienced one. And the more experienced one is looking at me like, uh-oh, where's this going? And the less experienced one is like, well, what is the rest of that prophecy? I said, well, in Doctrine and Covenants 88, you read the rest of that prophecy. He said that all nations of the world would then get involved with the Civil War, including Great Britain, and that the Indians would win it. And the more experienced missionary started to look around and he said, well, well, the Civil War isn't over yet. And the less experienced missionary looked at him and said, we don't believe that, do we? It's crazy. People are feeding on ashes in the name of religion. They have to prop up their false gods they have to keep the system going. They have to turn a blind eye to what the facts really are in order to belong to some organization. And let me tell you something. I bet you they had wonderful fellowship meetings there at the Fellowship of Dagon. I bet they all had their little fish hats and everything else that they bought as souvenirs. And everybody sat around and said, you worshiping Dagon? I'm worshiping Dagon. We had good crops last year. Oh yeah, Dagon's great. And everybody's sitting around saying, yeah, Dagon's great. Everybody else thinks Dagon is great. And they're feeding on ashes. 
How interesting then that when the presence of the true and living God shows up, Dagon is flat on his face. Understand this. Very important thing to grasp about worship. When we worship God, sincerity is not enough. It's not enough. Sincerity is a worthless virtue unless it's invested in truth. I mean, I can sincerely believe that human flight is possible by flapping my arms. I can be so sincere in my belief that I could go to a high-rise building in downtown Tucson and stand out on the 14th floor, go to a window, and step out and start flapping. But my sincerity isn't going to make the sidewalk one bit softer when I hit. Sincerity is a worthless virtue unless it's invested in truth. Who do you worship? Who do you worship when you worship God? Is God the God of the Bible? Is God who He is revealed in Scripture? God who is one God existing in three persons, His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who is awesome. God who is holy, yet near to those who are of a broken and a contrite heart, who tremble at His Word. Is that the God you worship? Or is the God you worship a God who completely agrees with you about everything? A God that you have made over into your own image and likeness. It has been said, and accurately so, that in the beginning, God made man in His own likeness and image. And ever since, we've been trying to return the favor. Is God just like you? Is God completely understandable and comprehensible to you? Have you put God in a box or minimized Him? Or are you so in awe of who God is that the more you get to know Him, the more blown away you are by Him? Sincerity is not enough. Jesus said that those who worship the Father must worship in spirit. Yes, to be sincere is a good thing as long as it's in spirit and in truth. Who do you worship? Are you worshiping God? Are you worshiping day God? Just the embodiment of your own desires. Well, God wasn't going to go along with that. And lo and behold, they walk on in and there's Dagon face flat. So they had to set Dagon back in his place. Bad God! Get back in your place, Dagon! And I imagine that was really embarrassing if you're a priest of Dagon. You know, have your big deity there falling over while people are walking on in. Okay, we've got to get up earlier and check this thing out before the locals come in here. This isn't a good thing. So they set it up in its place. But God wasn't just going to let things stay in the realm of embarrassment comparing the presence of God represented by the ark and this idol Dagon. Things are going to go from embarrassing here to downright spooky. Take a look at verse 4. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both of the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. I think this is a fascinating development. If Dagon falls over once when you bring the ark in, maybe that's bad luck. Maybe that's someone, you know, not checking for faults in Dagon's pedestal. But when you come back the next day and Dagon's never fallen over before 
And now you've got Dagon not only fallen over, but shattered in pieces. You've got a pattern going on here. I mean, pardon the expression, but you might be saying to yourself, something is really fishy here in the temple of Dagon. Why? Because two days in a row, Dagon has fallen flat before this idol. You might come to the conclusion, whoa, that's too much of a coincidence. Something supernatural has to be going on here. And you'd be right. These things just don't happen. Somebody, something, some force had to be behind this happening. It just doesn't happen all by itself. You know, that's a fascinating conclusion to come to. We would all come to it through common sense. And the fascinating aspect of all of this to me is that there is far more compelling evidence for the presence and existence of God than just an idol falling over twice. You and I have been among the priests of Dagon. That might have convinced us that something supernatural was up. But do you realize the incredible, overwhelming evidence that God has given to us of His presence and of His reality that's accessible to each and every individual every day? Do you realize that this universe that we live in bears the fingerprints of Almighty God? The fact that you and I are living and able to discuss the idea of whether God is the author of the universe or or not is an incredible proof of His existence. Consider some of the overwhelming evidence for the existence of God beginning with the whole idea of the universe's complexity. In the book, The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel was talking to William Lane Craig, who was a Christian apologist, about the whole idea of does God exist and is it rational to come to that conclusion? Well, William Lane Craig began to cite some of the scientific evidence that more and more is pointing inescapably to the fact that intelligent design requires an intelligent designer. Consider what they are discovering about the universe. Even if you buy into the idea of the Big Bang, we are told that scientists are coming to the conclusion that the Big Bang itself was not some chaotic primordial event, but rather a highly ordered event that required an enormous amount of information. In fact, from the very moment of its inception, the universe had to be fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of life like ourselves. And this points in a very compelling way to the existence of an intelligent designer. Consider what, by no means a Christian, Stephen Hawking, the author of A Short History of Time, came to the conclusion on, he calculated that if the rate of the universe's expansion, one second after the Big Bang, had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, our universe would have collapsed into a huge fireball. That's precision. Consider British physicist P.C.W. Davies. He concluded that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for the formation of stars and the necessity for planets and life is one followed by at least a thousand billion billion zeros. This is if the universe was to come into its present state just by chance. Davies also estimated that if the strength of gravity were changed by only one part in ten followed by a hundred zeros, life could have never developed. You know, God stacked the deck, gang. He has shown us that this universe, as we live in it right now, is impossible without His direct divine intervention. And yet, if you and I came across something as compelling 
as Dagon falling on its face two days in a row, we might become convinced. And yet I still run into people who say, well, you know, if God really wants me to believe in Him, why doesn't He make the evidence of His existence more evident? Why doesn't He show me? What else can He do? The basic DNA molecule, the basic building block of life, without which life is absolutely impossible, do you know what the odds of one DNA molecule being formed by chance are? The French mathematician Charles Eugene Guy calculated it at 1 in 10 to the 605th power. That's 10 with 605 zeros after that, a number that is so large we don't even have a name for it. To put it this way, according to probability theory, if the odds of an event happening are greater in 1 in 10 to the 50th, it will not happen. The odds of one DNA molecule being formed by chance, 1 in 10 to the 605th power. People say... You know, well, you know, do you believe in God? I think you're taking a big chance on that. I say, I don't think I'm taking a chance at all. If someone came to me and said, I've got an investment for you, it's going to require all of your life savings to buy in, but the chances of it coming through are greater than one in ten with 605 zeros after it. So that's all I think I'll take that chance. Conversely, for those who are living their lives as if they're no God, I saw a bumper sticker today saying, if you're living life as if they're no God, you better be very, very sure. <laughs> the odds of them being right are less than 1 in 10 with 605 zeros after. <laughs> and so, we see far greater proof than just Dagon falling over. God has left His fingerprints on the very universe. But notice something else that has happened to Dagon here. Dagon's not only face down before the Ark of the Covenant now, he is shattered. Shattered in a very interesting way. The head of Dagon and both of the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Why do you suppose of all the ways that God could have broken down that idol? That idol broke with its head separated and its hands separated. I think to drive home a very important point. When you start worshiping anything or anyone less than God, two things about it. First of all, it's irrational. And secondly, it is lacking in power to help you out at all. If you allow anything else to take God's rightful place within your life, <coughs> you're setting yourself up for difficult times. In Psalm 115, very interesting observation about those who put their faith in anything or anyone less than God. Psalm 115 in verse 1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. They do not walk, nor do they mutter through the throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see, in our day and age, we might not bow down before an image like Dagon. But I'll tell you what, if you are living for pleasure, pleasure is your God. If you are living for success, success is your God. If you are living to work out constantly and make your body a certain way, then your body is your God. If that's the organizing principle of your life and nothing is more important to you than that, guess what? That is your God. You know what? Scripture says that those who worship idols become like them. You see, when you worship Jesus Christ, a marvelous thing happens. When you follow the true and living God, God begins to conform you to His likeness and to His character. But if you worship anything or anyone less than God, the same thing happens, but in a negative way. 
people become worse, not better over time. They become more selfish, more self-centered over time, not less, unless the Lord is doing a work in your life. Let me ask you a question. What are you worshiping tonight? What do you worship? Do you worship something that ultimately can't help you, that ultimately doesn't make sense in the long run? Well, here you see this incredible thing happening. This idol has fallen over. It's broken in pieces. You would think, wow, maybe the people involved in worshiping this ugly idol would put two and two together and say, we've got to change our way of thinking. Well, look at how they react in verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. They looked at the threshold. In other words, the, the little uh, kind of curb that was there and that caused the idol in their estimation to break when it fell. And they said, ooh, that's bad luck. We've got to step over that. You know, it's not like you take a step back and go, wait a minute, I've been worshiping this piece of rock. It's now shattered in pieces. Maybe I need to reconsider my faith. Oh, no, I just need to get more superstitious, you see. You see, that's the trap of getting involved with idolatry. You know, it's been said, and accurately so, that a man convinced against his will, is of the same opinion still. You can show people all the proof that you want in the world that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. You can show them that to an objective observer, the historical evidence for the resurrection from the dead is overwhelming, but unless they want to accept that, they never will. It's not a question of, can I believe Jesus rose from the dead? It is always a question of, will I believe? that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's a key issue in worship. Why are we worshiping? Are we worshiping a God that just exists to confirm our prejudices, like these priests of Dagon? Or are we worshiping a God who is greater than we are, whose perspective is far above ours, and who may have some decidedly different ideas about what we are doing in life? than we might hold at this particular moment. Why are we worshiping? You need to understand something. When you come to God, when you come to the true and living God, God has a funny way of tipping over the idols in your life. You might not like that when that happens. But when you've truly been worshiping God, when you truly come into His presence, one of the great signs of someone who has truly worshipped God is they come away not only with an utter conviction that God loves them just the way they are today, but they also come away with the other conviction that God loves you far too much to let you stay that way. That's who God is. That's what happens when you come into His presence. That's what happens when you face His truth. And you don't necessarily even have to be a Christian to come to that conclusion. Ted Koppel, speaking at a commencement address at a major university, made this observation. He said, Our society today finds truth too strong a drink to consume in an undiluted manner. Go ahead and sleep with whoever you wish, but wear a condom. Be be selfish, but just make sure that you're true to yourself. What we fail to understand is this, Koppel said, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It is a howling reproach. Moses did not bring down from Sinai the Ten Suggestions. He brought the Ten Commandments. Because God sees things very differently than you and I see them. 
Isaiah 55, God said, My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you are truly worshiping God, you will have an awesome sense of God's higher ways and our need to align ourselves with those higher ways. Why do you worship? Is it to convince yourself that God sees everything your way? That God's a Republican? (laughs) That God's a Democrat? Or do you understand that God is far above our petty little human distinctions and that we need to get to know Him? We need to understand His holiness. Well, (laughs) pretty interesting things going on here. Worship at the Temple of Dagon has gone from embarrassing now to spooky. Dagon is in pieces. And now it's going to get downright painful. Take a look at what happens in verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and He ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. Do you understand what's going on here? Those of you who have the old King James Version, this word tumor here is translated hemorrhoid. Now, we might look at that and we might say, ooh, you know, I mean, I wish I would have had the Preparation H concession back then. I could have made a killing. But things were far more serious than that. The idea of a emerod as it is rendered, rendered in the Old King James, the Hebrew idea carries more the idea of a tumor or an outswelling growth. Scholars studying this have come to the conclusion that the tumors involved here were probably something known as buboses. A bubose happens in an individual where their lymph glands begin to swell. Your lymph glands, maybe you've had a cold or you know, a sore throat and you felt your glands kind of get kind of uh, you know, enlarged underneath your chin right there. Well, that means your lymph glands are fighting off an infection. They are producing as much lymph as they possibly can into your bloodstream, which attacks the viruses and the bacteria that are running around in your system. And your lymph gland is one of the most uh, the primary uh, sources of defense in the body. Well, if the infection that is coming after your body persists even in the initial attack, your lymph glands have the capability of swelling to over 100 times their normal size. And they keep swelling, especially when you are encountering bubonic plague. In fact, they swell and they swell and they swell and they fight and they fight and they fight until finally they can't fight anymore. And they just remain in that swollen state, very painful condition. That's a bubose. We get the term bubonic plague from that. It's a very, very uncomfortable situation to be in because... As you probably know, your lymph glands are concentrated under your neck, which is pretty sensitive territory. They're concentrated under your armpits, which is very sensitive territory. And they're also centered around your groin area, which is extremely sensitive territory. These Philistine people were probably being struck by the bubonic plague. And so, listen to what they say. They say, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. (laughs) That's God's fault that this is happening. Have you ever run into people who blame God 
for their problems. Nothing new. That's exactly what was going on here. But notice what happens. They come up with a solution. Therefore, verse 8, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. I love this. Uh, let's send it to our neighbors. <laughs> it's causing us all these, this pain. Hey, misery loves company. Let them have it for a while. So it was, verse 9, that after they carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against that city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of, the God, of God to Ekron. So it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God, the, the, the God of Israel, and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. Where there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now notice what's going on here. Here you see some tried and true ways of dealing with a sinful state. One of them is by passing the buck. First they pass it to God. Say, well... It must be God's fault. It can't be what we're doing here. You know, good old Dagon, he can't be our problem. It must be this ark. And then secondly, they pass it on to other people. They just say, well, let's get it out of here. Let somebody else worry about it. And, and so they're spreading the misery around. You know what is really fascinating to me? I see a very similar approach to dealing with problems in the lives of people sometimes. Some people believe that the best way to deal especially with spiritual issues, especially with emptiness and difficulties in their lives and relationships, is by a change of scenery. You ever run into people like that who believe that, honestly, if they can just go somewhere else, then all their problems are going to be solved? <laughs> doesn't work. You know, sometimes you hear people talking about this and it's really discouraging. I remember once I was getting a haircut and, and, you know, I was really short on money in those days, and so I was kind of in one of those, those cheap, you know, uh, we've got different sized bowls for you here. Pick your bowl and we'll, you know, set it up. And this girl's cutting my hair, and she's telling me the story of her life while she's cutting my hair. And man, one thing after another after another had happened to this woman, and man, she was to the point where down started to look like up. And, and I mean, it was just this tale of woe, and every conceivable bad thing that could happen to somebody had visited her and was residing on her doorstep. And I mean, this tale of woe was getting thicker and thicker. And then she stopped and she said, but I have one thing going for me. And since she was cutting my hair and had a sharp object in her hand, I said, what, what's that? And she goes, well, I have relatives in California. And you know, if I can go to California and move in with them, I'm sure that my problems are going to be over. And I said to her, oh, really? Where in California do they live? And she goes, Fontana. <laughs> now, those of you who are from California or have even driven through on I-10 in California, outside San Bernardino, you run into Fontana. The, 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 not, no offense if you are from Fontana, but the, the single highest tourist attraction in Fontana is the slag heap from the old steel mill that they have there. I mean, Fontana is where all the smog in the L.A. basin goes to die, basically. It is a gruesome place. But this one, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, Fontana? And she's going, yeah. If I can go to Fontana, then all my problems are over. 
I didn't have the heart to tell her. But that's what happens when we think geography can solve a problem that's going on internally in our hearts. What we don't realize is just by changing our scenery, we've changed nothing because I guarantee you, no matter where you go, guess what? You go with you. And so do all the things that have made your life here such a mess. And I guarantee you, I've seen it over and over again. People say, well, I just need a fresh start. I'm going to go somewhere. They get their fresh start. And within six months, they've made their life just as much of a flaming mess in their new place as it was in the old place. Why? Because the problem isn't where you live. The problem is how you live. The better even insight is this. Who you're living for. God isn't going to let you get away with just hightailing it down the road and say, well, you know, I was working on your life and I was trying to teach you some things, but gee, now that you've moved to Fontana, I'm going to let you off the hook. That's not how God works. Those are superficial solutions to problems. And God never goes for superficial solutions. He always goes for the heart. Well, the Philistines tried to pass the buck on down the road and it just got worse. Notice it got incrementally worse. The first people suffered painfully. The second people even more. And finally, when it got on down to Ekron, they were dying in the streets about all of this. God was turning up the volume. Why? Well, look at verse 12. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Why does God turn up the heat? Because sooner or later, if you are worshiping an idol, you know, God is not real subtle about this. He has placed within the heart of every human being a God-shaped vacuum that only He can fill. And an idol won't fill it. Religion won't fill it. Being busy won't fill it. A change of geography, a change of scenery won't fill it. And sooner or later, when the bottom falls out and we have one of those honest moments where we take a look into our souls and we realize that all those things that we thought were going to bring us happiness just weren't and just don't, you know what happens? We cry out to God. We cry out to God. Have you ever noticed that when people really feel their number's up, they never say things like, Oh, Buddha, please save me! Oh, Hare Krishna, deliver me now. It's so funny. When they think their number's up, they call on God. The living God. The real God. The true God. And I think these Philistines, even in their own way, found themselves in that circumstance. Why does God turn up the heat? Because He wants to get our attention. And He will do whatever it takes to get our attention in the here and now. Why? Because he knows that the there and then is too important to just leave us comfortable in the here and now and let us slide right on down that dead-end highway and end up separated from him for eternity. He will even make your life uncomfortable. And man, I bet you dimes to donut holes that there were people that were staying around these Philistine cities saying, well, no wonder we don't like the ark and no wonder we like Dagon. Dagon never causes this kind of pain. Yeah, but Dagon can never help you either. Why does God get our attention? Because He's a loving Father. Because He cares for you and me. And He realizes exactly what's 
at stake. Psalm 32. Boy, I go back to this passage a lot in my life. Psalm 32 says this in verse 6, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Now listen to what God says about this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. God is basically saying this to us. Look, I want to have a relationship with you. And we're going to have a relationship one way or the other. You can come willingly, or i got a bit and a bridle for you. Those of you who know anything about horseback riding know why horses tend to obey when you pull on the reins. Why? Because when you've got a piece of metal in your mouth and someone's yanking on it and you've got your gums right there, it hurts. And so a horse figuring that out after a while doesn't really need you to pull very hard. They just go, oh, oh okay, okay, we're going left. Okay, I understand. I mean, you're taking a horse that outweighs you and me by two or three times, at least, maybe four times. And you can control it with that little bit and bridle. Well, sometimes God will allow pain into our lives. Sometimes God will allow discomfort into our lives. Sometimes God will allow us to bottom out because He's pulling us back to Him. Don't be like the horse or the mule who need a bit and bridle. When God calls, come to Him. Because sooner or later, He will put you in a place in your life where your cry is going to rise up to heaven. So what do we learn about worship tonight? Three things I think we can really take away from this passage. First thing we need to understand is that the whole purpose of worship is for us to worship the true and living God, not some reasonable facsimile, not some counterfeit knockoff that we've made in our own image and likeness, but to really know God for who He truly is. Secondly, we need to ask ourselves why we're worshiping. We don't worship gang just to pursue a nice feeling or to confirm our prejudices. We worship because we want to enter into the presence of Almighty God and see life not through our eyes, but through His eyes. And finally, what should we get out of worship? The ultimate thing that we will get out of worship is a personal and one-on-one -on -one relationship with God that is so valuable and so beautiful and so transforming you wouldn't trade it for anything. And when you look at all the tribulations and all the trials and all the ups and downs that you've got to go through to get to that place, I guarantee you, when you get to that place where the love of God is residing in you, where the peace of Jesus Christ is ruling in your life, where the stability and the strength that comes through His Word is a daily experience for you, where His grace is just the sweetest thing in your life, you'll look back at your life and you'll say, yeah, it was all worth it. I might not ever want to go through it again, Lord, but it sure is Wonderful to be here now. Are you there now? Is that where you're at in your walk with God? Let's pray and ask the Lord to make that where we are. Father, we have found ourselves too often worshiping in the temple of Dagon. We have made images and idols in our own likeness. We've tried to get you to go along with our plans. 
we have blinded ourselves to the things that you would say to us personally, and sometimes we've stopped our ears. But the thing that blows me away about you is you never give up on us. You love us. And you keep pulling us back to you. Lord, I just really sense in my heart that you're pulling people to yourself tonight. And there are some that have just discovered that the things of this world that they've tried to look to for satisfaction are just broken cisterns that will hold no water. But Lord, you tell us that you are the fountain of living water. You tell us the one who comes to you will never hunger and the one who believes in you will never thirst. Lord, I pray that for those who are spiritually hungry tonight, that they would just say yes to you. Because you stand with arms outstretched saying, just come on home. That's where you belong. Lord, let us turn from these false and wrong answers of the world and put our trust in you. And this describes where you're at tonight. You just want to make peace with the Lord here. Just pray this prayer in the, the, the quietness of your heart. God knows your heart. He knows where you're at. And just pray this prayer. Dear Lord, I want you in my life. I want to let go of the idols in my life. I want you, Jesus. I want the real thing. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for living for myself. Set me free now and heal me. Come into my heart. Make me the person you want me to be. I give you my life, Lord, because you gave yours for me. In Jesus' name, amen.